you know, we had hookers yelling at us, go take my picture, and they'd turn their head, whatever. It was a newspaper war. Good old-fashioned <laughs> knock-down, drag-out newspaper war. And I was just trying to see if nonviolent aggression worked. And when he finally took a swing at me at about 3 in the morning, I went, ah, I win, I win, I win. What made it easier for me was... Uh, the really crappy crew of people that was writing for C. For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrush. I'm Paul Blinoff. And this is a tale of two weeklies. In September 1995, Ron Garth and his staff vacated the C Magazine office and moved overnight into a new operation in their production manager's basement to start their new magazine, View Weekly. It came as a surprise to his printer, Great West Newspapers, to which Garth still owed a significant printing debt for the years of printing C Magazine. To briefly recap, Two weeks before the first issue of View was published, Duff Jameson and the folks at Great West had proposed a deal to Garth that would manage his printing bill by having C Magazine go into voluntary receivership. Great West would essentially become publishers of C, with Garth and the existing C staff staying on as, well, Great West staff. Thinking that Garth would agree to the terms to make the debt go away may have been a hasty assumption. If there's one thing that we've learned over the years after working at both magazines and on this podcast, it's to never underestimate a tenacious idealist. And if there's one in this story, it's Ron Garth. Instead of going along with the receivership proposal, Garth took everything to produce the weekly magazine, save the C branding itself, though he did use the existing C racks all around town to distribute the first issue of View. He had to put the new magazine in something that week. Essentially, the name of the new magazine, View, was a parody of C itself, and to the public, it may not have looked very different at all. Garth rounded up the C crew, took the files, the back issues, scrubbed the office computers, and brought the advertising contacts along with them. And that's how View Weekly began, as Ron's son, Mike Garth, recalls. Well, I remember the first, uh, the first View ever was uh, produced out of uh, the basement of uh, the production manager's house. So newspapers produced out of a basement of someone's home. And View uh, didn't miss uh, a beat. It was every single week. You, like that's Hence the need for a basement office. And uh, whereas C, I think, skipped a couple weeks or two getting their feet back. Uh, I think they missed some news, but View didn't miss a beat. Gene Cosowin and Stephen Sander were among the first employees at View Weekly, pretty much by default. They'd been working at C and both had some sense that something was happening between Garth and Great West. Still, to suddenly find themselves making the first issue of a new paper in a basement instead of an office was an abrupt change of pace. But they still had jobs, so they kept working. It was it was more abrupt, I think, for me. I think he had heard rumors and such, but I think it was more as in the, oh, what do you mean we're putting the next issue out in jeans out of jeans basement it was like what what what's going on and well we're actually not see anymore we're going to be something new and it's like and we're going next week and so just go to jeans house and do what you do like really so if for me it wasn't so much about any sort of politics or anything going on in terms of the magazines or even so it was just the okay uh, we're going there now The basement was a less-than-ideal space in which to make a paper. It was cramped, with the smell of litter wafting courtesy of Kazuwin's cats, and most of the production wasn't taking place during traditional business hours. 
And it wasn't like we were working there nine to five, right? It wasn't like we were coming and getting out of his hair by five. It was, we were there late into the nights, early mornings and constant runs to the the grocery store down the street for food. But yeah, I remember this, the crampiness of it. Like it was literally, you kept to your spot because you take, you know, one quick move and you're going to like headbutt somebody else. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, it was tight quarters. And headbutting was pretty easy because of the emotions. It was tense. The basement had six people working out of it. Two production people, Kazuwin and Sandor editing, Ron Garth and Kazuwin's wife, Brenda, taking up the advertising side. Plus there was a steady flow of freelancers coming in and out with copy for the issue. They were diligently working away on their new paper, but at this point, everything was up in the air, including payment. For those first few months, money showed up, but inconsistently, and sometimes from different bank accounts. Me, I do remember having to sit out a month and getting a check for for two months' worth of work. Some of the checks that sometimes were drawn off people's personal accounts and not off the like it was done just because sure. people were covering. And, and there were times where you were asked to wait until Friday to cash it. Yeah, like you were waiting for, not so much for someone to pay for their ads or what have you, but for those checks that they knew were there to clear because it would take a couple of days. Uh, so it would be sort of, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were cleared by a certain day. And it was it was part, the writers, I think, for the most part, were they were exceptionally patient. Because they, they, a lot of them believed in what they were doing and a lot of them liked what they were doing and they were willing to say, hey, like, I'll pick this up on, on Friday. And, and, you know, there were priorities. Ron and, and, and the people involved took it like a family. So they sort of knew like, oh, this guy's got a bill coming in. So his check's got to clear first because he's got rent that he's got to pay on Wednesday. For some, the uncertain pay or swift abandonment of a steep printing bill could have been unsettling. But those who worked with Garth felt a pull to stick with him. Call it naivete or idealism or damn the man. For the View staff, it was about family. And you'll hear the voice of our co-producer, Andrew Paul, in this interview. And he knew a lot about your personal life. I mean, one of the things that Ron used to do, and I I don't say this with any sort of pride, is Ron would, would literally go around to four or five homes sometimes more than one trip and pick us up to make sure that we got to the office on time. It was, uh, it was, uh, an interesting dynamic. As I said, it was part of the whole family dynamic. Like how you getting to work? Well, the boss picked me up. Um, Maureen Fleming, who was the co-publisher of the magazine was married to Bob McCammon, who was the assistant coach of the Edmonton Oilers. Bob and Maureen would have these parties, um, for staff. So basically anyone who, you know, wasn't married, didn't have family in town, they would have like a Thanksgiving. For everyone, right? So it was really nice. We'd go up to their condo and and we'd have this night. And it was, it was special. It actually was part of that whole family staff thing. And it was really nice. I think, I just want to add something. About, you were talking about uh, how writers stayed loyal to us. And I think the best way to recognize it, like I'm not very much for treating writers like family. I mean, I was more like, I didn't want to get into the touchy-feely thing. It was more like if they had problems, I said, if you can't get it done right, get it in on time. But for the better writers and those that we were closer to, if they knew they were getting regular work, that was a sign that they were part of it. Right. Those who weren't, um, well, they weren't part of the family. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and so I think we can all agree that um, the money was not the, uh, no one was in it for, it, it, for, for the money, right? No. So, but what was it? What, what was it about, um, you know, view that kept um, so many people inside of that, you know, kind of pressure cooker, fly by the seat of your pants um, atmosphere uh, that 
well, kind of just was also C when I was working there as well. It's very similar. There's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, why why did you stick uh, <laughs> stick around and, and stay in it for as long as um, you did? Because it was one of the places where you actually could do whatever you wanted within given parameters. But what would this new publication be called? Releasing a print magazine isn't just a matter of typing out a few articles and pushing a publish button. It needs a hook, an identity to sit above the stories it chooses to cover. One of the first titles batted about had its sights set on the future, even if nobody understood that yet. I do remember one time Ron walking, I've got the perfect name, I've got the perfect name. I says, okay, so we're just saying, how about Edmonton Online? First thing someone said, and it was on everyone else's mind, so we're an internet publication now. Okay. No, no, no. You don't get it. Say we're just online. That means we're in tune with what's going on in the city. That's our way of saying that. No, Ron, that's our way of saying that we're on the internet. So he had to be talked down a lot. We interject here to remind listeners that they're discussing this in 1995, when AOL still build in hourly dial-up increments. Google wouldn't even exist until 98. Their debate of whether or not to be an internet publication, and what that meant exactly, casts a long shadow over the 20 years that would follow. Print media's inability to respond to what the internet would do, and how it would affect the print industry, was the beginning of a very long ending. Craigslist, which would lead the way to soak up so much of print media's most lucrative real estate, classified advertising, also started in 1995. Eventually, they did decide on the name View Weekly, which was an across-the-bow shot to see. The names positioned the papers as two takes on the same scene, two visions of the city to consider. I guess from my perspective, and I think probably from a lot of people's perspective, is, is that you're putting this thing out, or you think you're putting this thing, and I'm going to say you think you're putting this thing out, because there was, as, as Gene was talking about the tension, it was this uncertainty that hung over everything you did, that you thought, okay, I've marked up all these pages and this is the edge and I know these people are doing rewrites and this is and I've got an article to write and I've got to get this stuff done but is this ever gonna see the light of day or will this just be these stack of paper sitting here because you were thinking to yourself is this actually going to happen for the record I, I that never crossed my mind at all until I think it was Steve who actually brought it up to me I said, and then I don't know if I said it to him I said I, what, what I want to say is, why are you telling me this now? <laughs> I was always such a ball of positivity. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, you know, when I'm focused on something, like, nothing else exists, right? Yep. I mean, so to me, it was, uh, it was a done deal that it was going out. It's got to go out, you know, um, just because of the work we did. <laughs> it wasn't great. I think under better circumstances, it would have been a much better debut. Well you got to work with what, <laughs> and I what think, you have, though. You know what? I think that uh, I think we were really good at uh, winning jackpots with lousy hands. <laughs> uh, that's how I look upon it's that. It's a really good way to put it, actually. Like, you know what? I would say, like, you know, if we if, if we were a band, we were putting it together with three chords in a mobile unit. We weren't like, you know, we weren't getting a nice studio or what have no. you. Mm-hmm. We were just like, all right, you've got 500 bucks and three hours of studio time. Let's get this thing out here. So it, it you know, it, it did feel like in, in those days when you were there, it came at you from all directions. The cover feature in the first issue of View would look at sex work in Edmonton, 
But as it sometimes goes in the weekly business, the problem of good cover art was one of the first hurdles to overcome, especially as the issue's deadline grew closer. I think we're doing something on hookers. Was our first issue from View? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. There's a lot of things here. We were arguing over that. The hooker thing was uh, an idea of, was it Mandel? Charles Mandel, yeah. Yeah. It was, Charles Mandel was the news editor at the time. Okay. Who yeah. did not uh, stay there at all. He did it from his house because, well, um, he kind of liked that separation from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and he had a writer and Wendy Bowling try to do something on, on the whole prostitution thing. Right. But we didn't have any photos. <clears throat> and so the night before we were actually going to try and finish laying the sucker out, so I said, okay, well, they'll take Wendy out for a drive on 95th and 97th, see if you can take some pictures. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible. Um, you know, we had hookers yelling at us, Could take my picture, and they turned their head, whatever. And we did not we did not stop the car to take it. We were just going like a sort of a drive-by sure. shooting uh, scenario. And so everything that came back was like streaks, blurry. They would have made great art pics but, uh, yeah. you know, for abstract. But And uh, this was all shot on film. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Too, right? yeah. But so as Maureen, the associate publisher, we wound up getting some kind of a shot for that, which is pretty tame. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it, was, it, was, it was a setup shot, wasn't it? I think that it was actually a stock shot. Yeah. Regardless, we got something. And that was vying against something else that was going on. The first cover of You almost went in a very different direction. An image from 80s heartthrob rock band Loverboy. Kazuwin had learned that a local visual artist had done photography for the original Loverboy album. He wrote a story about her and her work. And the Loverboy photos were, if nothing else, quality art. And we were so close to having Loverboy on that cover simply because it was, it was good art. Mm-hmm. Crappy band sort of goes by everything we stood for in terms of uh, alternative values. But, um, but I know when push came to shove, and I know I wasn't pushing it too hard, but we wound up with the prostitute story instead. But there was a lot of pushing and shoving with all that, a lot of rewriting, um, just a lot of focus, really. The first issue of View Weekly came out on September 21st, 1995, with the cover story titled Prostitutes in Peril, The Dangers of Bad Johns. The magazine looks so much like its predecessor, in fact, that the claim for damages made by C's receivers against View and Garth outlined that the format of the new magazine was nearly identical to C, and intentionally meant to confuse readers with that publication. On September 28th, one week later, C's receiver's claim for a temporary injunction against View was adjourned until the following month, and instead the judge ordered that View would be required to print a full-page apology advertisement in their next issue, then run the same ad as three-inch square ads for six months following. View was ordered to deliver a copy of that ad to all advertisers that bought into View's first issue. Here's our producer Andrew Paul reading the ordered ad copy. View Weekly is not associated in any way with C Magazine. The publishers of View Weekly sincerely regret any confusion that may have arisen as a result of the publishing of View Weekly on September 21st, 1995. So, by strokes somewhat heroic, somewhat slapdash, as much of the rest of the next two decades would go, the first View Weekly issue came together under stressful and hurried conditions. With the weekly news cycle, there was no time to rest. The next paper had to come out next week, and the next the week after. Conditions remained the same for a while. 
View put out an issue every week while Great West's receivers and Garth kept the proceedings going in court. There were interim injunction orders, findings of contempt, claims for damages rising to $800,000. It went on and on. The final payout involving the receivers of C Magazine, remember this was resulting from Garth's initial print debt with Great West, wasn't paid out until 2011, 16 years later. And what happened in 2011 is for another episode. For now, back to those early days at the VIEW office. It wasn't like that was the first issue. It kind of went that way for a pretty long while. <laughs> like, it was, uh, it was, you know, you, you would go in on Monday and you would be thinking, okay, well, this thing's supposed to come out on Thursday. What is it actually going to look like? And you were thinking, I don't know. <sighs> But yeah, so it was, that was part of the fun of it because, you know, really by Tuesday, the adrenaline kicked in and you were like, we did, we worked all night long. Yeah. Like we were creatures of the night and, you know, it was just normal that Tuesday, Wednesday, you pulled all nighters. Like you yeah. knew you were doing that and you actually sort of prepped for it. Yeah. Like that's sort of like the, your living schedule. Yeah. I think people didn't like me because I had the added benefit of not having to commute. Fortunately for everyone involved, View didn't stay in Kazawin's basement forever. A few weeks into its existence, the paper found a new office in the Empire Building on Jasper Avenue. Kazawin, too, wasn't there forever. Some months later, he found a full-time gig and left his managing editor position, and Sandor took over. You know, at the time, you don't think how much is going to be thrown at you. You just kind of do it because you're excited to do it. It's like, wow, okay, I'm going to get to sort of drive the bus in a way. But at the same time... You know, you're not thinking that, Steve, you've been here. You know what it's going to be like. You know these fractious Mondays and Tuesdays and this fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pantsness. You know, that's just going to continue, right? You you know that by just the nature of the beast, no matter how much you try to... And you ended up... It felt more like I was riding the wave rather than driving a bus. Like, it really did. It felt like I just got on, and now where is this thing going to take me? Uh, because that's really how it was from week to week. I got to say that uh, um, I think Steve really had a, a better handle on the till than I did um, because, I don't know, maybe a process was already in place, however flawed it may have been. Um, but Steve was a guy who could actually set direction instead of voice to it. Um, I just basically used whatever lyrics was available, you know, to to articulate the magazine. Right, right. Um, but I mean, I will say this though. I mean, and this is all I'm going to say about that first phase. It didn't seem like we achieved any kind of stability, or at least the illusion of stability, until we finally moved into the Empire Building. It was like October, November. Okay, uh, which year would that was not still ninety five? Still ninety five. Still yeah, ninety five. Yeah, yeah. The weekly grind was unique, something that wasn't quite taught in journalism school. You planned a week ahead, and if you were lucky, the week would go as expected. And the thing is, uh, what made it easier for me was uh, the really crappy crew of people that was writing for C <laughs> and, and running it. We could kill them musically. And I remember one particular piece that I did that just said, yeah, yeah, we're staying. You guys don't know what the hell you're doing. So what were the C and Great West staffers doing on the other side of the fence? Over at C's now upturned office, Great West was soldiering on, looking to replenish its ranks. They resumed publishing C Magazine shortly after the View Crew's office exodus. 
Rich Kearney was freelancing for C in the early days after the split and was eventually hired to edit the news, opinion, and theater sections. I, uh, as I said, I was doing a lot of uh, science writing and so forth. I went to the um, World AIDS Conference in 1996 in Vancouver. So at that time, the politics surrounding the epidemic were severe. That was my first article. Uh, we covered a few different uh, takes on it, sort of the, the politics and the protests that were going on on site. And um, some of the, this, this was the, coincided with the first announcements of the antiretroviral cocktails that are now responsible for bringing people down to like zero load, basically. So uh, that was my first byline with those guys. That's huge. It was. It was phenomenal. It was in it was early days of the takeover. So because I was working for Great West Newspapers, which was the chain that had sort of taken control of C Magazine from uh, Ron Garth's group. So um, I wasn't involved uh, until uh, more than a year after that, but uh, working in that company and uh, contributing uh, to like the very first issue of that magazine under Great West control. Um, we were very aware, <laughs> very aware of it. It was very much at all hands on deck. We were like Great West Newspapers was the St. Albert Gazette and a chain of um, rural weekly newspapers. Um, but a lot of us were, um, I was already doing a lot of uh, arts reporting and news reporting in and around the Edmonton scene. So it wasn't that hard to make the leap. Suddenly, there were two papers covering the same beats in the city, trying to get interviews on the same stories. Even under simpler beginnings, a rivalry would have seemed inevitable. But given how CNView came to be, their publishers in Garth and Great West still battling it out legally, the stakes seemed higher. Not only were the papers trying to cover the same ground, they were also splitting the same advertising pool, which meant each paper had to find their own way to attract dollars. It was crazy. <laughs> it was so intense. It was the most, you know, they say like news and newspapers are a competitive game. And it was the most highly competitive game I have been in in my, in my life. It was, it was uh, every week, you know, doing uh, editorial content, compare and contrast, and the ad people doing uh, editorial inches to advert display ad and, uh, and uh, classified ads and trying to calculate uh, what was their ad revenue, how many of those ads were given away, how many were paid for, what's the circulation. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a newspaper war. Good old-fashioned <laughs> knockdown, drag-out newspaper war. With the tradition of the weekly arriving in street boxes for the Thursday morning rush hour, the Tuesday night production grind was the same at sea as it was at view. They stuck to the same publication schedule, so the editorial rooms were doing pretty much the same things at the same times. Well, you're trying to fill the paper, right, at those Tuesday evenings when you're mapping it out. And Wednesday, you're uh, all day in production, right? And uh, Lingley used to do this thing. Scott Lingley was in journalism school when he started freelancing for C. He would put up both hands, palms facing me, and start wiggling his fingers, and then put them down on an imaginary keyboard and say, the bullshit starts here. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, we got to write something. So uh, those Tuesday nights, sometimes you were up pretty late getting more copy 
uh, generating like yeah. real content. Lingley did end up getting a full-time job at sea. He was drumming for local bands in the early days of the magazines, sat at an editor's desk there until 2003, and stayed on as a freelancer thereafter. He capped out his alt-weekly stretch as C's longtime restaurant reviewer. Like many young J-School graduates, though, his first real full-time gig wasn't quite what he expected. In, in, in C proper, I don't know. It was, it was a bit of a circus. Uh, salespeople coming and going all the time. My first day... I won't tell that story. <laughs> Why not? Come on. <laughs> uh, well, so when I, when I interviewed for the job, they told me how much money I was going to make. And I was very excited because I had not made that amount of money before, which is not to say that I'd ever made any reasonable amount of money. It was kind of my first serious full-time job. And then my first day of work, the publisher pump, popped his head in the office and told me that I was actually going to be making significantly less than what they had told me at the job and interview. (laughs) So that wasn't so amusing. Uh, The thing that I remember most about my first year at sea was the incredibly long hours that I kept. It's not a totally hilarious anecdote or anything, but we we did 60, 70-hour weeks. You know, I would start editing on Sunday night if I got a trickle of copy in, and then I would work all day Monday. Tuesday, we had to get the paper ready to go to press. And at one point, our publisher decided that it would be cool if I went on A-Channel. Remember A-Channel? Oh, yeah. Remember (laughs) Wired? I would go on A-Channel and I would do a movie review. Uh, So that got added to my Tuesday. Oh, jeez. So I would edit copy all day, stack the paper right at the end of the regular work day, go home and eat something, get downtown, do my A-channel spot, and then go back to the office and keep editing until everything was done. So that that got to be a little bit miserable. So, you know, with the long <laughs> hours and the low pay and everything, why why were you there? What were you, what were you sticking it out for? I felt like it was in some ways the best journalism-type job I was going to get out of school. You know, it was, a, it was a lot of responsibility, but I felt like I was kind of up to it. Um, I... Th- thought that I was a better writer than a lot of people who were working for C Magazine. <laughs> uh, and so I thought that I can pro- improve things on that front. Um, and it's, and we had a lot of freedom to do the stuff that we wanted to do. Uh, we didn't have any money to do it, but we could come up with any idea that we wanted and try to execute it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that caused problems. The editors at View had similar stories of late nights, long hours, and somewhat exploitative work-to-pay ratios. But there was something about the freedom Lingley mentioned that seemed to attract a particular sort of personality, despite all of the hardships and stresses of a relentless weekly slog. It was, you know, it's not so much the editorial meetings I remember as much as the layout nights. One funny story I remember uh, from the early days is we had someone who was with us, and he was just sort of part-time, and he was in psychology uh, at U of A, you know, the late nights got a little, because we were up for like, you know, long periods of time and we tried to break the tension in some way. And he had this course in what he called nonviolent aggression that day. He was telling us, cause he had this book in nonviolent aggression. I'm like, what's that supposed to be? And he was like, you're supposed to be able to take all of the criticism and all of this and deal with it in a nonviolent way. And I'm like, 
oh, you don't, you don't tell me that you just did that. So I would literally hand him stuff to do all night long as the night went on and I would swear at him and I would like say things. I would insult him in the worst way. And I was just trying to see if nonviolent aggression worked. And when he finally took a swing at me at about three in the morning, I went, ah, I win, I win, I win. And it was like, you know, everyone sort of laughed and it was like the tension was sort of broken. But yeah, we would have long, long nights and... Yeah, fueled by really bad pizza. It was just just energy. You know, as much as you say that you wanted to organize, not like organizing a magazine like I've done since, where you kind of have a really good editorial plan. It's like our editorial plan was sort of like, this is kind of, sort of, maybe what's going to happen, but we'll see what where it goes from, you know, and as the as the week goes on, because it was it was an interesting office dynamic. It was it was a family, but a sort of dysfunctional one. It, we all kind of loved each other, but we all had very different quirks and quirks about us. Editorial positions at the weeklies came with social perks, like getting into countless concerts and into the good graces of event promoters. Those lofty coming-of-age stories where the awkward young journalist finds himself hanging out with his music heroes? Yeah, that actually happens. Kind of. But the trade-off for buying into the lifestyle often meant that personal financial security had to be found elsewhere. The truth is there wasn't that much money to be had for staff or freelancers at either magazine. What were freelancers getting paid back then? Uh, when I was there, nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started paying them near the end of the... Uh, once we started going weekly, back with C, we started paying them. And um, I don't remember the pay scale at all. I do know that we weren't... Ron wasn't very keen on paying by the word, so we did it by the column inch. Mm-hmm. The writing got better, but also a lot more writing got padded. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was something right, that I right. that I insisted that we stop paying by the inch because we stopped doing that really quickly. I said that um, paying by the inch means that yeah, you're getting a lot of bridge paragraphs that don't need to be there like a lot of like stuff that i'm putting lines through and of course the writer then is annoyed when they've been paid by the inch and they finally have taken out half the story that doesn't need to be there so mm-hmm. i said you play a flat rate what we cut we cut it is what it is what we keep we keep so it's um but i remember it was probably around some articles like 50? 50 I, I think 50 like you know that, that's the number that sticks out there's some that were more some that were less I mean we did we did sort of train it sort of as this is a uh, an easy one-on-one interview to do that is going to be lined up by a music industry rep for you a decade or so later in 2008 when those of us working on this podcast started writing for the papers the pay rate was pretty much the same around 50 bucks a pop for a freelance piece See paid moderately more, sometimes. And longer features like covers did tend to pay more, maybe a hundred bucks. But the rates never really improved, not in a significant way. There's something to be said for the VIEW staff's loyalty to Ron Garth. He built a culture around that paper, around that fight. That made you feel like you were part of something. Despite the lack of money, you were taken care of. Garth himself was certainly aware that financial difficulties could amplify stresses at work. But the camaraderie of that mutual misery built bonds. You, you, you can never get enough uh, resources together to hire all the writers you need to do the kind of job you want to do. I mean, it's just everybody was always stretched. You know that very well. Uh, both of you know that very well. And, uh, and so uh, you wound up with, with people that uh, had a real love of it, you know, like really wanted to get mutual uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, 
interest, but you didn't. I didn't. You know, I didn't always have the money to. Uh, uh, people got paid. It wasn't as well as it. You know, it wasn't as good as it should have been. Uh, but uh, certainly, we all had a pretty good time and learned a bunch of stuff. You know, as I said, that we were we were family, dysfunctional family. We were close. There were some people I was extremely close to that I consider some of the the best friends I've ever had, um, and so that ability to work with those people as stressed out as it was and as as I said fly by the seat of your pants as it was that you're working with people that you kind of truly love that keeps you going for a while it's not going to keep you going forever it's going to keep you going for a while because you understand you have to make way but at some point you're going to say to yourself I need to to go on and make a little more dough and do some 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 other things but when you're in your 20s like you know, I was, I was having a lot of fun and I don't think I appreciated how much fun it was until much later. If anyone says, do you regret those times? I go, no, I, I kind of needed those times. Like I needed that time where I was able to let my hair out I, and, and be sort of the person with the stick going, hey, I'm going to poke, poke you here. I'm going to poke you there. You know, that's, that's not who I am today, but we all need to have that point in our lives where we let our hair out down a little bit. I think when View was at its best, and it doesn't matter who was editing it, and if it doesn't matter if it was 1998 or 2008, is when it let its hair down. And Ron Garth, that ponytailed purveyor of independent alternative news, kept right on going. He may not have taken out the ponytail very often, but he had his own ways of letting his hair down. He avoided the bill with Great West, but in 2005, Garth sued the Government of Canada, Conrad Black, Hollinger Incorporated, and C Magazine for $5.7 million in damages. At the time, Black's company, Hollinger Incorporated, was owner in part of Great West Newspapers. Garth's claim alleged that because Conrad Black had renounced his Canadian citizenship when he was knighted in 2001, that made C not actually a Canadian-owned magazine and therefore cheated taxpayers and view of any advertising revenues collected. But that's also a story for another episode. If there is one thing we remember best about the times at the weeklies, it was the fondness we had for the range of personalities that made up their mastheads. The dedicated editors grumbling at late filing columnists, the wide-eyed freelancers picking up CDs for review, the savvy designers who would eventually come out on top in the digital era, and the front office staff who cordially took cash for escort ads that filled the magazine's back pages each week. It was, as they say, the best of times. Next time on A Tale of Two Weeklies. You know, there's some sort of alchemy there where it's a bunch of different voices, but they all feel like they belong under the same tent, and you just want to check in with it, you know, every week. It was, a, it was an open, happy conspiracy to write about the people that you knew. A lot of us just kind of ran in a pack for a while. And we were young enough that we didn't have to worry about early mornings or responsibilities. Yeah, it was really a dream come true for a, for a 20-year-old. I just considered us sort of like this like special world of people who happened to be lucky enough to be able to do this. Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonder Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Artwork is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.